Welcome to the Ephesiology Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the study of the early Christian movement and its implications for the church today. Today, we are with Michael, our resident ephesiologist, Andrew Johnson, associate pastor at Neartown Church in Houston, Texas. I'm Matt Till with Restoration Church in the suburbs of Chicago, and today we are with a special guest, Keelan Cook. Uh, Keelan is the senior church consultant with the Union Baptist Association in Houston, Texas, and also serves as an instructor of North American Missiology at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. In previous years, uh, he spent his time as a church planter in West Africa with the IMB and doing ethnographic research in Washington, D.C. with the North American Mission Board. Keelan, man, what a, what a great uh, bio you have and, and a lot of experience you have, and we're so glad that you get to share some of that with us today. It's a joy to be here. Um, Keelan, I'm just wondering, can we add anything to your title that's a little bit more wordy and <laughs> yeah, right. uh, more a uh, difficulty to say? I know, right? It's uh, I don't get to pick those titles. Actually, I wish I, I wish I did. I'd change it to something much more fun. I don't know. That's pretty fun <laughs> to me. Well, it well, sounds like a big task for sure. The work's a lot of fun. I, I really enjoy the stuff that we get to do here at the association and being part of the work happening over at Southeastern. It's a it's a double privilege, I guess. So with your double privilege, then, if, if you don't mind, what are some of the things, again, that you get to do uh, with yeah. your big titles? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'll start with uh, work at Southeastern. So I uh, have, um, I actually have the privilege of working there, uh, helping train and equip students, of course, as, as an instructor, as a faculty member of the seminary and working in their Center for Great Commission Studies. So Southeastern has a lot of programs that are focused primarily on church planting, on applied theology is is a way that we skin that when you, of course, you've got your pure theological fields, but Southeastern has a big focus on, on its applied theology as well. So what do we do in North American missions? Or what do we do in international missions? And how do we train and equip students to be thinking about those issues and be good practitioners in different cultural and contextual settings uh, for disciple-making ministries, for church planning, for things of that nature. Uh, so I work in that side of the house at Southeastern, really helping students think about what does it mean to be a North American church planter? What does it mean to uh, think about issues like all the people groups that are now living in U.S. urban centers? How do we how do we skin that cat? Like, what do we do with that? Is there some mission of the church-based responsibility there that we need to consider? Um, so that's, that's the kind of work that I do there. Uh, that's a ton of fun, man. Uh, the mm-hmm. other stuff, where I kind of my day job, so to speak, right? I'm here in Houston, uh, work for the Baptist Association uh, here in town. We're a network of right now about four or five hundred churches. Uh, I know that sounds vague. It depends on the days, how many churches we've got around in the network. Uh, it's the largest Baptist Association in the country. It's a, a network of churches that exist essentially for the purpose of working together to fulfill the Great Commission. I mean, when you think about a network of churches in a big, major metropolitan area, uh, what does it mean for those churches to cooperate together in a way that actually leads to fulfilling the mission of the church uh, in a broader sphere than just one individual local church? How, How do they link their horses together, so to speak, to run in the same direction toward accomplishing that goal? That's really my task here at the association, is thinking through those issues and helping our churches figure out how they work together uh, to accomplish that disciple-making mission that Christ has given His church. Oh, that is cool. I I, I don't want to get sound uh, sidetracked here, but uh, Keelan, you have an incredible West African accent. Tell us about that experience. Sure. So before my time at Southeastern, I actually spent a little while on the field in West Africa as a missionary with the International Mission Board. Uh, my work there was zero to one frontier uh, kind of pioneer church planting. Really, we were we were in a Muslim, uh, almost exclusively Muslim area. Uh, there were uh, really very few, if any, Christians uh, out in the region where I was working, and so it was it was very rural. Uh, it felt very much like some of the stuff you see Paul doing in the Book of Acts. You'd walk into the middle of a village, and here I was, and the whole village would stop what it was doing, and come and you'd say, I have a message from God. And everybody would say, well, what is it? And so we'd sit down and we'd talk about the gospel. And sometimes that would lead to Bible studies that led to a church plant. Other times it would lead to getting kicked out of a village. So it was, uh, it was a pretty surreal experience, uh, but it's certainly something I'm thankful for. Uh, and gave me a real appreciation for the work of kind of apostolic church planting. Mm-hmm. Hmm. 
Well, this is really exciting. And I think uh, it just sounds like with your experience and the work in which you're doing now, um, I think it seems to fit really well um, with what we've been talking about here on the Physiology Podcast. And that is we're really interested in studying that early Christian movement and really trying to understand um, what we saw in that er- the early New Testament of and really kind of focusing in on the city of Ephesus and Paul's ministry and uh, exploding worldwide from there. And some of the elements that created um, just the, the worldwide global movement we now have of Christianity. And, um, and so, uh, you know, as we're looking at uh, the state of the church in North America, what does it look like to have a, a strong theological basis for a strong missiology? Um, you know, we're, we're asking ourselves a lot of questions about the existing church today and also and, and really applying it back to uh, the early church, too. And you know, Keelan, I guess we're interested to hear some of your thoughts on this and, and some of the research and study that you've been doing. One of the things that we've really been talking about here on this podcast a lot are CPMs or church planting movements. Um, what have you seen in your research and study that uh, the positives and the negatives of uh, church planting movements and specifically, even as it applies here to North America? Yeah. Uh, so I think it's a great question. Uh, one of the things that I'm encouraged about in the North American context right now is the rise of conversation around CPM just in general. Uh, There are more water cooler talks I'm hearing now, and there are more churches that are now having to think through what's all this stuff about CPM that I'm hearing. And is this something that we need to engage in? I feel like the timbre of that is starting to raise. And that's only good in my estimation for our conversation here in North America about what we as a church should be doing kind of on the home front. Right. Um, there's, although I, w- I will say this, and I think I think you you skinned it well. Positives and negatives, right? I think there's positives to the movement. I think there's some negatives. There's some cautions in the movement uh, as well. Uh, let's think positives first, right? So one of the things I really appreciate about conversations geared toward church planning movements or disciple making movement thinking in general uh, is the focus on growth from the harvest. I think that is one aspect of this that is probably, if there is a most important positive, I think it's that one. Uh, There's a a stated, and most of the people I know who who are CPM practitioners or who are promoting a more um, movement-based misiological method, I think there's this stated foundational understanding that what we're doing now may not be getting at the task of making new disciples. A lot of what we're doing in former models was really shuffling sheep from one church to another and taking people who are already Christians or already believe what we do and help them believe better. Uh, frequently, mm. when you hear a disciple, the term discipleship used in kind of a more traditional North American context, it's usually code for take people who already believe what we believe and help them believe it better. It's very cognitive based, and it's essentially how do I make a Christian go from shallow to deep? in their theological cognitive understanding, right? Well, a CPM methodology tends to take that presupposition and throw it out the window. And it says that may not really be what discipling is. Discipling is this aspect where we as the church are responsible for taking those who are not yet disciples and taking them from that crossing a line of faith into being fully formed disciples. And when we Move the goalposts on that one, so to speak. I think it takes the church's conversation about what it's supposed to be doing back to a healthier spot to start with. It is on the rare occasion that I run across a CPM practitioner, at least in America, whose stated purpose is shuffling sheep from one existing church to another, right? Now, note I said stated purpose. I'll I was going to say accidental purpose. Yeah, I'll, I'll, get to the, I'll get to the negatives here in a second. Um, Yeah. And so I think that's one of the real big positives that we have here is a redefinition of disciple making in a way that I think is healthy. Uh, Another one is it rightly admits that many of our old metrics were wrong. Uh, Buildings, butts in seat and bucks. That's the way Uh, we measure church, right? (laughs) We love these. For you. Um, we, we were real heavy and focused on the, the physical footprint of a church's space. Right. That clearly is a, is a measure of success for the church. Uh, how many people we can fit in our auditorium and then how many people are, are in our auditorium uh, was a measure for church success or ministry success. And then how, many, how much money can we can we get behind the mission that we're doing? Right. So these tended to be our indicators, the metrics that we would 
measure to see if ministry was successful. And most of your CPM uh, practitioners and the, the CPM methodology, they're going to come to that those assumptions and say, no, on, on all three of those. Those aren't actually healthy success metrics for the disciple-making mission the church has been given. Uh, instead, we need to be focusing on some other kind of success metric. We need to be focusing on making new disciples. We need to be focusing on gospel saturation uh, as our success metrics. So changing the goalposts on those issues, I think that's another thing that is a real positive of the CPM conversation in general in, in the U.S., uh, helping even the traditional church sit back and go, maybe we're measuring the wrong things and it's giving us a false sense of success. And we may not be accomplishing the mission that the Bible gave us. Instead, we're accomplishing a mission that we've crafted in our own understanding of church ministry here in North America. So Keelan, not to interrupt, and maybe you're going to get to this, but um, so I am going to interrupt. Uh, (laughs) um, How is the church responding to this? I, I, I mean, you're you're painting a picture from what I'm hearing as gosh the church is really starting to get this, uh, but is it is it really getting this or are are there some that are some that aren't? Um, yeah, so that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Um, yes, we're actually spending over a million dollars to answer this question. There, there you have it. I am cautiously optimistic about the way the church is receiving this information. And the way that especially the established church is trying to think through, and when I say established church, I'm talking about your traditional brick and mortar. Some people use the term legacy church, right, to to refer to what currently is. And uh, I think as you hear ministry leaders that exist in that world think through these issues, I'm cautiously optimistic. Uh, One of the things I'm, I'm intrigued to see is how rhetoric is catching on. And historically speaking, when you have a paradigm shift, you're going to see rhetoric catch on before you see systems and structures actually change. Uh, We're really starting to see at this point in the established church, we're starting to see a shift in rhetoric when it comes to disciple making. And we're starting to see a shift in rhetoric when it comes to things like multiplication and sending. Now, Unpack that a little bit. Yeah, sure. So 25, 30 years ago, your average church, and here I am, you know, Speaking with as though I have statistics on this, I don't. This is my <laughs> 20, 20, 30 years ago. Your average church pastor and leadership, when they sat down and talked about the vision and, and purpose of their particular local church, it very often didn't include anything about replication, multiplication, uh, sending people out from their own body to go plant something else. Uh, our church needs to birth another church, churches planting churches. I'm using all this rhetoric right now. Uh, 25, 30 years ago, you didn't have a church. It was a rare occasion to have a church that would think in those terms for their purpose. Nowadays, we fast forward a couple of decades, I think it's actually much more common. A lot of churches today that I interact with, and in my role, I interact with a lot of churches, they at least have the rhetoric right. We're supposed to be about making new disciples. We're supposed to be about multiplying. Disciples make disciples. Churches plant churches. That language is becoming commonplace, even in the established church. The idea that a church is supposed to be a sending church, I'm going to put that in quotations, is something that is fairly common to hear now in traditional established church circles. Now, whether or not they have a healthy concept of what it means to be a sending church is another question. And so while the rhetoric is starting to show up, I'm not certain our systems and our practices match the rhetoric yet. We talk about the need for multiplication, but we exist in a recruitment paradigm instead of a development paradigm when it comes to local church ministry. Uh, I had, so when I was at the seminary and even here at the association, I get this question all the time. Uh, I'd be sitting in my office at the seminary and I would get a call from XYZ megachurch pastor somewhere in America. Um, and they would call and then say, man, we've really been thinking through our vision as a church. And we really know that we need to be a sending church. And we want to really be a part of church multiplication. Now, have you got a guy at the seminary that we could support to go plant a church in XYZ City? So you, you'll notice there's some good things in that. You know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, that guy may have never called. He may have never even been thinking about these things. 
However, he's still not fully there with the systems and processes because what he essentially said is our church needs to send somebody over there. You got I anybody on loan? Somebody from outside my church to go. Mm-hmm. And so well, and not, it's that mentality that we need this yeah. professional guy that's been trained. That's right. Yes. Um, and I don't want to lose my own to go over there. And the irony about a recruitment paradigm when it comes to local church ministry is that it's zero sum. We'll never reach multiplication if we are in a recruitment paradigm. It's not possible because it's zero sum church planting. It's zero sum disciple making. If I have to pull a guy from this context to send him to that context, we lost somebody over here to gain someone in ministry over here. Whereas if I, as a local church pastor, realize that true sending church capacity comes from looking at the flock that God's already given me and saying, I need to reach inside of this congregation, identify, assess, equip, and then send my own. That's how multiplication is going to occur. So again, hopeful. I feel like the rhetoric's starting to get there. How do we get processes and systems that match our rhetoric though? I think that's a big question for the church in North America right now. Keelan, this is this is phenomenal stuff that we're hearing from you today. So thank you so much just for for sharing this. And um, you know, I guess one of the things I want to ask you too, just as a sure. follow up, is I totally agree. I think that I mean we're hearing the rhetoric uh, increase. Uh, we're participating in it and in our own circles. Um, I think we're having a hard time seeing the institutional action, but I also think the institution as well, the established legacy church, is also waiting. Uh, this has been some of the conversations I've had where they're 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 participating in the rhetoric, they're wanting to engage in the rhetoric, but they're looking out and they're looking at the missional church, the missional movement, maybe with uh, on one spectrum with disdain, right? On another one with eagerness and expectation, but both seem to be kind of holding back and waiting to see. We want to wait to see if that's successful or not, because I think there's a fear that it's just another rhetorical fad that we're just simply engaging in rhetoric that really it does not match reality. What do you think, what would you say to that, uh, Keelan is, and, and are you hearing some of those kind of that tension play out in the churches that you're working with? You know, I think that's a fair assessment. Uh, a lot of folk, I think are waiting. I, I think you've got a number of folks that see, see the language, wonder if it's a fad, see the language and wonder if this actually describes what, what the biblical mission is and what we should be doing anyways. Um, and so I do think some, you're, I think the way you skinned it's well there, some people have got a disdain toward it because it challenges a lot of our previous processes and a lot of what we've thrown time, money and investment into. It says maybe, maybe we were barking up the wrong tree, so to speak. Uh, the other side though is hopeful that maybe this is that breakthrough that we need to really see what we want. Uh, I know a number of guys who've got into pastoring in an established setting that, their heartbeat was for winning souls. Their heartbeat was for, you know, you've got all the different ways to talk about it, making new disciples. Their heartbeat was for engaging the loss that was around them with the gospel for the purpose of transformation in their lives. And then they wound up moving into a role in an established church where they're primarily involved in system support. Uh, it's building maintenance. It's maintaining HR and personnel policies. It's making sure all of our committees and stuff are working the way that they're supposed to. It's, it's, the traditional established church and all the stereotypes that we would look at now in lampoon. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so there's that tension, even I think in pastoral leadership in some of these churches where their heartbeat was for, for this one thing over here and the means to get there was moving into a pastoral role. And now what I find myself, I find myself sidetracked by figuring out how to do a Facebook ad or, or a mailer or, or some of these kind of things instead of, how do I really participate in this thing that I felt like I was called to in the first place? So careful, think, careful, Keelan, you are triggering Michael right now. I just want to let you know <laughs> that you are triggering him. Okay. We're I'm not even going to say anything. <laughs> you know what? I will say something. I have a file. <laughs> Here we goes. That, that <laughs> is titled stupid things. And it is full of these Facebook promotion. I, I should stop. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Keelan, I also want to know what, what do you, you know, this is, I think was something we're hearing about and you're touching on something too, that we've had some of these conversations with some other uh, thinkers and missiologists and people who are engaged in this conversation. And, you know, I think we're getting some mixed reviews um, and uh, maybe not as mixed as I'd like to, I'm thinking optimistically. Um, Honestly, I think a lot of people on this side of the camp who are sold out for CPMs, church planting movements, 
Um, most seem, and I, I just want to say most, but not all, but most seem to uh, be wanting just to give up on the legacy church, walk yeah. away from it, and and say there's no hope for her. Uh, she's an old paradigm that needs to just kind of be sent out to pasture, and uh, this is the new move and the new mo- the mo- new the new movement. What would you say to that? Um, I, I'm not asking you to tell us how you feel about it, unless you want to share. But um, yeah. we're, I'm asking more about like practicality. Do, do you see like what would what would it take? for a legacy church who's saying, you know what, we're engaging the rhetoric, we see the biblical mandate, what's it going to take for us to really begin to engage in this? Yeah, sure. So I'll throw my cards on the table with that question, because I think it's I think it's absolutely the right question to be asking right now. Um, I work in the role I work in in the association, because I do have a very strong opinion on that issue. Uh, I chose to work in a network of established churches. The reason I chose to work in a network of established churches is because I think Christ loves his bride, even when she's broken. Amen. Yeah. Amen. And even if some of our systems, most of our systems in the way that we're doing established church in North America right now, uh, need to be either tweaked optimistically or maybe realistically completely shattered and rebuilt. Uh, the church isn't a system, essentially. The church isn't an institution, essentially. The church is a group of people. It's a redeemed congregation uh, that currently exists in, in an established church, maybe in an outmoded, outdated, or ineffective system. So if, if we're leaving the institution behind, we're also leaving behind the people that are in the pews. I just don't know that that's responsible um, ministry on a, on a macro level. I think uh, we have somewhat of a, a rescue mission maybe for, for some of the established church as we lean forward. I look at it kind of as a, a backdoor and a front door issue. Um, so there's all this conversation right now. And, and when you, when you hear statistics, they're coming out of Lifeway or you hear statistics. Uh, so I'm, we're Southern Baptist, right? So when I hear statistics coming out of our own denomination of churches, uh, we'll gain 1,300 churches, lose 900. Uh, you'll, I think we're planting something like four or 5,000 churches a year nowadays. We're closing 3,500, 4,500 churches a year, depending on who you ask. Uh, just kind of in evangelicalism. Now, we need to increase uh, the number of churches we are starting, of course. But unless we can decrease the number of churches that are dying, mm. We're not closing the back door. And so we've, we need a two-pronged ministry in my estimation right now. We need to think of churches uh, in essentially two categories. Send from churches and send to churches. Uh, so we've got a church that is in a position right now where its mindsets and its methods, perhaps its uh, practice, can lead to them being multiplicative. Now that may be an established church. It may be something like... Uh, I mean, an obvious example now is the No Place Left movement that's really taking on in a lot of cities. Um, So you've got these various groups out there that are doing a more organic or home-based church network. All of these can fall in, say, a send from category. They're focused on how they can take the people that are in them and send out. But we've got this other group of churches over here that I think are in kind of a send to situation. Uh, They may need revitalized. They may need to be replanted. Uh, Their systems aren't healthy enough in their understanding of their mission for them to be able to do uh, really the biblically mandated mission of making disciples of all nations. Mm. And so how do we work with those in a way to help them move out of the sin to category and put them into a sin from category. And that's, that's the way we've, we've structured our thoughts on that here at our association is trying to help our churches think through how do we become the kind of church that can really, really multiply. Yeah, I, I I hear what you're saying. I and I can hear the, the thousand voices of pastors <laughs> screaming around the country saying, "Well, who are you to say that we need to be rescued? And who are you to say that you know we 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 need somebody to come to help us?" And uh, but I think I, I mean what you're saying I uh, resonates with where we are. But I'm wondering, Keelan, is the position that those of us who really are into this uh, disciple-making, multiplicative uh, movement type of mindset, whether it's CPM or DMM or or whatever, 
or some other hybrid of those or whatever form it might take. Should we be um, uh, d- demonstrating to that legacy church that, you know, we can really add value. We, we, we don't see that we want to rescue you, but we do want to, to show you that there's value in what it is that we're doing. And, and this is how we can come alongside and really see what you're doing propel uh, the growth of disciples in your community. Yeah, absolutely, Michael. Uh, the, one of the things that I think is, so when I talk about a sin from and a sin too, those are buckets. If you put it on a spectrum, we've got churches that are in, in crisis hmm. uh, and they even know they're in crisis, a lot of them. And I have a number of churches here in the area. So we've had uh, over the last year or so, probably three or four or five churches that we've wound up in our association coming in contact with. They're down to 10 or 15 members. They've got a building that holds 400. They realize wow. at this point, we do need help. Like we need some outside something to help us. So that's one end of the spectrum. And then we've got this other end of the spectrum over here that I think is intensely, hotly pursuing what I would consider the very core of the biblical mission. Uh, They're multiplicative. They're concerned first and foremost about disciple making. Their structures may look weird to an old established church, but they're doing something that's really hitting, hitting the center of it. Right. And so when you look at that spectrum, instead of looking in buckets, I think we need to say to churches, let us come alongside of you and help you find value in getting you toward that core mission task. And for some churches, it's we need to send people in to help you. But others along the way, I think you're right, are in a position where we can come in and say we can add value to what you're doing. Uh, Churches, I, I want to be clear when I'm talking about the established church. When I say that I'm optimistic about it, I don't think that everything we've been doing is wrong. Uh, And I certainly think hearts are in the right place in many of them. And I think motives are in the right place in many of them. And I think often what we've been is bad strategic thinkers. Hmm. Well, yeah, and that's, uh, you know, part of that is uh, we're not educated to be strategic thinkers in that way. Okay. So, but my pushback or my question, uh, I won't say pushback. That's just not right. Um, We can walk down this road then and say their hearts are in the right place, you know, they want good for people. And so then our, then our assessment is, ah, it was your method. You have the wrong method. So let's fix your method and everything is right. Is that, is it as simple as that? Or is there something more significant that we need to address? Yeah. So to be clear, when I say that it's bad strategy or it's poor strategic thinking, a part of it is reliance on strategic thinking. That's also poor strategic thinking. Or de- a so, dependence on or an yes, unhealthy dependence upon an it. An unhealthy dependence on it. So first and foremost, the mission of the church is the work of the spirit through the church to be accomplished, right? It's it's empowered by the spirit. It's a spirit directed, spirit directed, spirit driven, spirit propelled mission. Um, very often we've moved to a a mechanical understanding of the mission of the church. And I think that's problematic. Uh, Mm -hmm. however, not only have we moved to a mechanical understanding, we've, I think in a lot of ways done two things. One, we've stopped relying on the spirit for the work of the church. Uh, and two, when we moved into a mechanical understanding, we took the wrong success metric somewhere along the way, Mm -hmm. or we, we said, this might be what we want to aim at, but the method we put in place actually aims us at this over here. And, uh, and so we shot at the wrong target. Now you put both of those together and we wind up with churches that are in the wrong corner, so to speak, or they're headed in the wrong direction for a couple of reasons. One, they've relied on mechanics and they've relied on mechanics that are actually taking them in a direction that never leads to the goal they wanted in the first place. And two, we've forsaken the role of the spirit in the work of the church. Thing. Yeah, that's that's good, Keelan. I mean, those are the things that we're wrestling with too. And one of the things that Andrew, in particular, keeps pushing us to remember is that we're not trying to propagate another methodology right. in, in what we're talking about in ephesiology. What, what we're trying to get at is, you know, let's in some way we, we recognize that there's a problem, and to get at the root of that problem, we need to deconstruct it a bit. But we don't want to just leave it at some kind of deconstructed form. We want to be sure that there's a good biblical uh, movement 
theology that is going to undergird whatever it is that uh, uh, might occur in this context or whatever context or around the world. Yeah, that's so really well said, Michael. Uh, the I think our tendency a lot of times when we look at the established church and for some reason we go, that's that's not working the way that we want it to, is deconstruction. And the thing we've got to remember about deconstruction, it's easy to tear something apart. It's very hard mm-hmm. to build something back. And it's very easy for a lot of us to sit back and be pundits, right? We're armchair theologians all of a sudden. We're armchair strategists. And we can point out all the things the established church is doing wrong. And yet when it comes to replacing it with good gospel ministry, are we are we constructing anything over here that's actually going to accomplish that task? That's a much harder thing to do. Uh, and it's one thing that I think, I think we've got to be cognizant of and careful of when we, when we move into trying to critique the structures that are. Yeah, that's a good word too. Uh, so let's, uh, let's take a break right here at this point. Uh, Keelan, this has been wonderful, awesome conversation we're having on the other side of the break. We'd like to talk a little bit more. Let's start talking a little bit more practicality and perhaps uh, kind of answering a question, then that is, what what might a proper missiology or a, a drive for mission look like here in the U.S.? I know we've already been talking about some ideas, but let's uh, drill down in, into that a little bit more on the other side of the break. Certainly. Hey there, Ephesiology listeners. Uh, we are so glad that you are joining us. We want to make sure that you are equipped for all that God is bringing you towards. Uh, Michael, our resident Ephesiologist, is so prolific in writing that he just wants to start giving away some of his books. Uh, So to help you know more about this book, here's Michael. God's mission in the world is about just that. It's a unique mission told from Genesis to Revelation. In fact, it's the grand narrative of the Bible. It's that one unifying theme that we see in all of scripture, that God is in pursuit of a relationship with people. God's mission in the world is about telling the most remarkable story in all of human history and telling it in such a way that others can share it. We're offering it for free because we want people to be able to tell God's story. If that interested you at all, or you would like to take a look at it, you can go to godsmissioninTheWorld.com wordpress.com and download your free book, God's Mission in the World by Michael, a resident physiologist. Again, that website is godsmissioninTheWorld.wordpress.com. And welcome back from the break. And uh, we are here with uh, Keelan. And uh, Keelan, just thanks so much for uh, being with us and just uh, sharing your wealth of knowledge and information with us too. And you know, one thing we, we did want to circle back on before we kind of move into the next conversation, but is, you know, we talked about uh, this, this missiological move and shift that uh, seems to be taking place. Uh, they're talking about the rhetoric, but also, um, you know, specifically even church planting movements or CPMs. But, you know, we didn't really talk about any of the negatives or the drawbacks to it that we've seen, especially in the North American context. Um, what have you seen is your, in your experience? Yeah, I, I do think there are positives and I think there are negatives to the conversation. That's true of any conversation that we're having in, in, in missions, right? So if we're going to look at this rise of CPM thinking, this rise of CPM or multiplication rhetoric, if you want to be more broadly defined even than CPM, I think uh, some of the negatives tend to be, here's some irony for you. I think one of the, one of the negatives tends to be an unhealthy focus on metrics and numbers. Uh, that's that's a high irony because it's often one of the reasons that people who land in CPM critique the established church. The funny thing about it is they what they wind up doing is critiquing what kinds of success metrics were being used, not an over-reliance on success metrics. Um, and so you see a change of the numerical goalposts, goal so to speak, uh, from building size to total number of cell groups started. Uh, or you see a change from how much money we as a church were able to pull together to how little money is necessary. Like we're going to have a rigid structure of zero budget church planting uh, or things of that nature. And it still winds up being a reliance on numbers to demonstrate uh, the success. And so there, 
there can be an unhealthy focus in that way. So that's, that's a negative of it. If you're not careful, um, that negative exists in both camps, ironically enough. Uh, in addition to that, a lot of CPM language, and of course, practitioners of CPM, it's really hard to talk about a church planting movement methodology as one cohesive and concise understanding of things. You're really more a cloud of opinions here than anything else when it comes to multiplication conversations, it comes to movement conversations about how in ch- how the church does what it does. It's and, a really uh, big umbrella. It is. It's really more of an umbrella term. And we've we've got to keep that in mind. Uh, But some, a subset within that umbrella can be too focused on rapidity. And if you're too focused on rapidity in your process, uh, the goal becomes starting, not completing. And I think that that is is a pretty significant critique of some CPM methods as they're as they're laid out. So I read the Great Commission as taking people from not yet disciples the way to fully formed reproducing disciples that exist in the context of a local body of believers, right? I think there's a fullness to that understanding. And if we're not careful, too much emphasis on rapidity will actually wind up just creating a focus on an entry strategy with the assumption that maturity will eventually happen somewhere along the way. Mm. Um, Or uh, sometimes you'll even see people that have a, have this particular methodology who say, well, that's not my responsibility. Now that's an extreme case, but you can get there if, if you're not careful when you when you walk down that road. Uh, and another negative that I think uh, you see is that pragmatics can set in in CPM just like it can in other missions models. Now this is true of any missions model. Mm-hmm. Um, despite a stated focus on planting from the harvest, which I mentioned as a positive, right? We really talk about making new disciples. Uh, I think uh, you do often see sheep shuffling as a means to accomplish movement. And now here's what I mean by that. Uh, if the stated purpose is making new disciples and practice what winds up happening for a lot of these guys, uh, particularly here in the North American context, we're talking if you're in a context where there are already an existing body of evangelical believers, loosely or, or otherwise, uh, one way to jumpstart your movement is by trying to start with inside existing churches and take people that they would claim are are not activated on mission, pulling them out of an established church and trying to start a house church network with them that way. Uh, while your stated purpose was making new disciples from the harvest, what you actually wound up doing was the exact same thing. A launch large church that goes down the street from that church does siphoning off its members. Um, and so I think there's some cautions there. Uh, and again, motives, you mean well, you're like, well, this person's just sitting on a few spectating church right now. And really what we're doing is activating them on the mission. The irony, though, is when you start off that way, saying that your goal is new harvest, you run into the same problem that this idea of plant a church first, make disciples later runs into. Um, mm. You run into the same problem. And so what you wind up with is five or six or seven house churches that have got eight or 10 already Christians in them talking about how they really want to go evangelize people. And they're just not doing it. So that tends this to be is, some of the negatives. This is so uncomfortable. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I actually, I think that the critique is really helpful. And, yeah. um, and I think it's really exposing as well, too, um, in some of the circles and some of the other things I think we are, we're seeing. And I, I think, uh, I mean, I think it matches some of what I think we're a little concerned about. Mm-hmm. And that is we're just... Are we just becoming disciple? Are we just moving into a like missional movement and just simply making disciples, but we're not seeing it through? But and I think one of the things that we're really committed about in physiology is the replication. the the full The fullness of maturity is not just one who becomes a disciple, turning from their ways to follow the ways of Jesus, but also that they grow in such a way that they then pass it on to another, who then passes it on to another right up to the point of four generations and beyond is whether it be, you know, age way age or just individually, you know, and I think that for us, I mean, the only way you can really do that is through a maturing process. Uh, Would you agree with that, Keelan? Oh, totally. I would. Uh, And it gets, it gets really fascinating when you start trying to talk about how do you measure the success of something? And like I said, Mm -hmm. you have some of the negatives that can fall into the same traps of trying to measure what they're doing in a way that's unhelpful. Um, but it's really hard to measure the right things when it comes to church, uh, the mission of the church, right? Like, how do you measure that a disciple was made? Is it their baptism? 
Uh, that's historically what a lot of evangelical churches have taken. Is it the fact that they joined your church? Did that make them? Is that the point that you know that they became a disciple? Uh, how do you quantify in any way what we're actually doing? Um, so it really becomes a slippery wicket somewhere along the way when the purpose, it seems from the scripture, is the, this maturation process, as you say, that, that, that happens. It's somebody who goes from not yet disciple, so I'm not somebody who accepts that Jesus is my Lord, through, across that line of faith to that idea of being a fully formed disciple. And of course, being a fully formed disciple, as, uh, as the Great Commission would define it, is somebody who obeys all of the commands. Not just knows all of the commands, but obeys those commands, right? And so you've got this obedience <laughs> understanding built into their identity. Um, I don't think identity and action should uh, be pitted against each other necessarily. I think the identity of a disciple is often known by the actions that they do, and the actions are the obeying of all the commands. Well, certainly one of those commands is the Great Commission itself. So a disciple should be one who makes other disciples, it seems. And if that's the case, maybe the way we get at understanding somebody's a fully formed disciple is by giving the person they've discipled the test, not them. Mm. I don't know. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah, no, that, I think those are good points. I, you know, and we, we've been having this conversation too. I, I don't, I mean, we reacted, the three of us reacted when you said o- obedience, uh, discipleship, and we've been having a conversation on the distinction between obedience and uh, identity, and right. you were getting there, and, yeah. and uh, there, there's much more of that that needs to be unpacked. But in terms of the metrics and how we measure it, th- what we're doing, I, I, I've wondered, and Andrew and uh, Matt and I have been having this conversation because, yeah, we do want to see multiplication. And that should be a natural thing that happens in the life of a disciple. I mean, you brought this up, Keelan, we're to make disciples. And there, there's an activity that has to be done in order for mm-hmm. that to happen. And there's a, almost a presupposition that that's going to continue to happen and result in multiplication. But, uh, um, and so we react to some extent to this numbers idea. And so I wonder if the metric that we might want to begin to think about is the impact. Mm-hmm. What is the actual impact we're having in our community as a result of making disciples? And, be, and then to begin to measure the quality of our disciple making vis-a-vis the impact that's being had. And the reason why I bring that up, and we've been looking at this in physiology as we look at that movement in Ephesus, that there was a clear impact that Certainly. disciples had on uh, that city. And it happens, you know, the impact was a religious impact as, as uh, the gospel was being shared among the Jews, as well as the Gentiles, the worshipers of Artemis and other deities. There was an economic impact that caused a near riot there. Yeah. There was an, uh, an intellectual impact as Paul was engaging people in the in the philosophical school of Tyrannaeus. Uh, there was a social impact in terms of the, the, uh, what was going on with the magicians there and them giving up their practices and burning their books. And there was a political impact because Paul obviously had relationships with the Ariop, uh, the Asiarchs and the town clerk and, and so on. So there was an incredible impact that disciples were having on their community. And I wonder if that might be something that we need to think about in terms of a a metric. Yeah, sure. And I agree with you completely there. And it's clearly demonstrated in in Ephesians that that's the case. Um, Yeah, I I wonder the same things as well. I think impact is certainly one of the things that we need to consider uh, in that. And that may get us toward a healthier metric than just trying to bean count something, if that yeah. makes sense. I think this conversation may lead into the next, and that is uh, talking about what a proper or an ideal uh, missiology for North America might look like. Um, because if we're talking about this idea of how do we create or understand our success and the move forward, how does how does the idea of an impact into the culture uh, kind of play into that? Because I, I think that might be kind of where, I mean, I guess if we look historically, maybe that's kind of where we've, we're coming out of is, I mean, we could debate whether you, the U.S. or North America was ever a Christian nation or not. But I, I think there's there's no doubt that Christianity and evangelical Christianity even has had a dominant influence on culture 
um, uh, for a substantial number of years um, in our in our early days, and has been slowly sli- slipping away to the point in which it's being pushed out into the margins. And um, and this is why these conversations are being renewed again. And so the question is: is you know we hear about some evangelicals or, you know, Christians wanting to fight the culture wars. And, um, you know, we're like, well, we're not trying to engage in culture war. We're actually trying to engage in, in missiology. We're trying to engage in, in, in reconciling all things, uh, to Christ. And so, um, is really kind of our heartbeat. And, uh, for us as, as, as believers is like, this is, this is where we belong. So I guess I'm just kind of setting the stage a little bit and just kind of saying, you know, Keelan, what is, what does the ideal missiology look like for North America? Yeah. And before Keelan opinion. answers that question, let me just interject because yeah. we can mistaken, we can uh, make this mistake that what was going on in Ephesus, this religious, intellectual, social, economic, and political impact uh, that was was the culture war, and that, but that's not what was happening there. I mean, it was an impact because disciples' lives were being transformed, yeah. right? Uh, and that was what made the difference. It wasn't that you know all of a sudden all of these Christians come with these new political ideas or new moral uh, standards that they want to impose on a culture. No, it was much more grassroots. Lives were being transformed, and therefore, because of that transformation of that those lives, the impact was being felt. So, I anyway. Yeah, Michael, I think that's a very, I think that was very well said. Uh, it's an important distinction that I think it's easy to get clouded in that conversation of impact in general. Um, yeah, because we, I mean, when we think about the evangelical impact in the United States, mm-hmm. I mean, certainly. Uh, a part of the maybe a part of the growth of evangelicalism has been because of the the moral uh, standards that evangelicals are attempting to impose on our culture, but at the same time, some of the demise of evangelicalism has become has has resulted from the moral standards that we're trying to impose on culture. Right. Uh, so one of the things that I think is interesting about that whole particular conversation. So when I look at scriptures, uh, one, I, this is a real sticky conversation. There's a ton of nuance in it. Um, but when I look at scripture, I think it, I think it might be better for us to speak about being faithful um, in our relationship to the world around us at the time that we're in it, if that makes sense. Uh, now, here, here's what I mean by that. So historically speaking, you look throughout just the history of the church in different places and at different times, and even in the text, when you look at Paul writing to different churches in different cities, you certainly see different outcomes than you see in Ephesus. So I don't think the success of the church's mission is always guaranteed to, to change a, a whole city's culture. I don't, I don't think that it can always do that necessarily or will always do that. Because you have other cities where that didn't seem to happen, and, and the church seems to be something Paul would say is a success there. Um, and so if we put things into a, a temporal uh, dimension as well, uh, there are times when I think the church will exercise great influence over the culture around it. We've seen that in North America, certainly. I think there may be other times where the church becomes a persecuted minority in certain places. And the, the question then becomes, how are we successful in our mission in relation to the cultural setting that we've been stuck in right now. Um, If we are largely, if we're the major influencer in our culture, as has been historically in the church in North America, do we steward that responsibility well? If we are a uh, persecuted but prophetic minority in a culture around us that dislikes us, do we steward that opportunity and that responsibility well. Mm. And so mm. I, I think it comes back to faithfulness in your cultural setting and your location, if, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think that's real nuance. It's real hard to kind of think through. Uh, one thing I, I want us to be careful of, of doing, uh, and I think Jeremiah, actually, the book of Jeremiah. Gives yes, that was just what I was thinking. On one, right? Just what I was so, thinking. So I think uh, we need to be careful to have a one plus one equals two understanding of if we do this as a church uh, and this, if this is the correct mission and we do it effectively, then the poverty rate in our neighborhood will dis- you know decrease or somehow people's lives are materially better around us 
or the culture will start to like us more or fill in the blank with some kind of tangible social change around us. We may not actually see that in our lifetime. Well, and it's also it's everything that you're stating is like, it's that mechanical mindset still. It is. It's, it's exactly it's right. We one plus one, A plus B equals C. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition to that, like when you look at Jeremiah, so we know the passage in Jeremiah that tells us to seek the welfare of our city. We love that passage as evangelicals right now, and we should, right? But we've got to keep in mind that that passage is sandwiched between two moments where Jeremiah says Babylon's going to be destroyed. He says it before and he says it after. Like there isn't that moment in the scripture is not a conversation of the social renewal of Babylon, so Mm -hmm. to speak. Mm -hmm. But it is a conversation about what it means to look faithful in a setting, to seek the welfare of those who are opposed to you or to seek the welfare of those who disagree with you. Uh, and to to live in that social location in a way that is actually a testimony to, and of course we're talking about Israel here, but for us today, I think an implication is that we would live in a way that is a proper testimony to the gospel and what it does in creating and changing the people. Now, that gets back to the idea that Michael was saying earlier about really it's a grassroots transformation that then tends to impact the area around it, right? Uh, we're about the way gospel transforms and changes people. That's that disciple-making mission. Uh, and so I think that's a, an important but hard thing to try to wrap your mind around when it comes to how the church is supposed to fit and do what it's supposed to be doing. Uh, and I think that really impacts what we are doing now in North America because, uh, as, you, as you guys were saying, like we find ourselves at a moment right now where it's very easy to turn the mission of the church into a culture war. I don't think that's a healthy way to view it. Uh, or it's very easy to just throw your hands up and go sit over in a corner and let the world pass us by and let's just do our own thing. Uh, I think disengaging is also not not a healthy opportunity or a, a healthy understanding of what we're supposed to do as a church. And so you've got to find something in the middle there that I think is faithfulness. Mm-hmm. And so how is that? Is that key then to what you're thinking in terms of a proper missiology for North America? Yeah. Yeah. So if I'm going to, that's a, so that's a really hard question to answer. Um, but I I like the question. I think it's one that we really need to think through. Well, if I'm going to talk about a proper missiology in North America, here's how I tend to think about that in general. I'm of the opinion. I think the Bible gives us something I would probably call like a core missional task. There's a lot of good things the church can and should be doing and a lot of different things that we should be involved in. But I feel like we get an understanding from the scripture that there's something that's kind of at the center of our mission, right? Uh, Color me old fashioned. I'm going to put the Great Commission is probably the best central statement, summary statement in the entire text of what that core missionary task or the core mission task of the church is. Uh, And I think, in essence, uh, we have a biblical given. That is our mission, right? So if we're going to talk about a proper missiology for any context, I think we have to start at the fact that the Bible does give us kind of a a given on what the mission is. Now, I don't think it gives us a given on the mission method. Mm -hmm. Now, we get we get sidetracked on that one a lot of times because you'll see people uh, regardless. You're pro CPM. You're not pro CPM. You're whatever. As far as your missions method, I think it's very easy for us to uh, conflate. Our, the mission with our method and say, well, the Bible says X method is what the church should be doing. And so we, we've got to not run aground on that one. But we do have guardrails uh, on what is and isn't part of the biblical mission, I think. Um, and uh, if, if we take it that way, so two anchors that I tend to like to think about and coming up with a missiology for any context of Great Commission here, right? The making of, I would say, new disciples. Uh, and, and them being fully formed and being in fellowship connection and partnering in the work of a local body of believers. I, I kind of think that's what the, the Great Commission, if you distill it down, is really telling us that we need to make central to our task. Uh, and then you, I like to look at the book of Acts. We start talking about this too. I think Luke tips his hand in Acts to what really is an effective success metric for the church. Uh, he's got these summary statements, these beautiful summary statements throughout the book where he talks about uh, what the fellowship and the mission of the church and how it does what it's doing. That's one of them. But the other one that I find really interesting is how he talks about the spread of the word of the Lord. 
he talks about the growth of the gospel, essentially. And so he's got these summary statements over and over where he says the word of the Lord increased. And because of what they were doing, the word of the Lord increased. It spread. It multiplied. This is the language he uses, uh, not about the church. He uses it about the gospel, uh, which I find really interesting, and I find it telling. So if that becomes a success metric for us, then you, you get to a lot, of, a lot of organizations nowadays talk about gospel saturation. I actually think that's a healthy way to conceive of a, an, an end goal, an important end goal for any missiology uh, or any missions method, I, I think should be. Uh, the growth of the gospel in a geographic region. So now if we take and put all those things together, you'll wind up with, for your guardrails, in my mind, for any any missiology in any place, in any time, the making of new fully formed disciples through the proclamation of and testimony to the gospel by the churches of Jesus Christ. Now, if we just take a statement like that and we hang any missiology on it, then I think we're a long, a long way there, honestly. But now, how does that apply to North America? So when you move into a particular context, you've got to think about your context in two ways. In, in any place, it's not just a place, it's also a time. Very often, we make a mistake when it comes to trying to come up with a missions method or a strategy of how to do what we're supposed to do do of thinking that our context is just a geography, but it's not just a geography. It's also a season. We're not just in a time, we're in a time, or we're not just in a place, we're in a place and a time, right? Uh, contexts are dynamic. Uh, Houston of 1950 is actually a different context than the exact same ground in 2019. And so we've, we've got to think in both of those uh, when it comes to developing a, uh, uh, proper missiology for any, any particular context, a proper missions method for any context, rather. So let's talk U.S. The U.S. is currently the most diverse country in the world now. Um, it's not one context, it's thousands of contexts. And that's very important for us to realize when it comes to doing missiology well, is the fact that at some point, the mission of the church is always a local mission at some point. I mean, if, if we believe that the local church is the primary agent in the carrier out of that mission, then it's essentially a local mission. Even when we do international missions, we've sent somebody to go be a local missionary somewhere, right? Uh, so there's something essentially inherently local to the mission, and doing missiology well means I understand that locality. Um, we can't assume, which has become very popular in uh, like popular level missions and church ministry books, that America is one context. It's not. Uh, we can't even assume that about a city. Uh, I'm yeah. from Nashville, Tennessee. So hey, it's, Keelan? Yeah, go Sorry, ahead. I didn't mean to, I, I, th just as you're saying this, I think it's yeah. really helpful because there's something I, I was thinking about here that yeah. maybe you can expand, maybe you're getting ready to go into it. Um, mm -hmm. So I want you to hold that story. Yeah. Um, but as you're talking about this, like I, I'm thinking about like some of the conversations we're having with with those who are out who are doing CPM like internationally. You talk to um, you know those who are missionaries. W one of the feedbacks that we get, and that, that at least I know I've heard too, is that the American church has always sent the missionary out, and they've kind of disregarded like the, the American uh, supporters and churches are like, I don't really care how you do it. Um, just go do it. You just go make the disciples. And it's really what you're talking about. It's those guardrails of like, as long as you're going and making fully formed disciples and they're somehow coalescing into a, into a church community or something we could define as church, we see ourselves as participating in the Great Commission globally, right? But mm -hmm. when it when it gets turned on its head back into the United States, suddenly we're like, whoa, hang on here. We have a box in which we do this in. And then what we do is when we actually ask that question deeper, it comes down to in a understanding or what we think the culture asks for, wants, or expects. Um, and so, and I think you're kind of getting at that where it's like, hey, the church, church in 1950, the ground in which we're in in 1950 is different from 20, is 2019. So is, is this kind of where you're go, getting at here for us? Is kind of like, Absolutely. do we even have a proper understanding of our own culture? Absolutely it is. So, um, yeah, and that is, that's actually where I was going. So, okay, I'm, yeah. Like I was saying, so I'm from Nashville, Tennessee. When people think of Nashville, Tennessee, they think of cowboy boots and big bell buckles, right? Like that tends to be what people think of. Uh, not West Africa? Uh, yeah, not West <laughs> Africa. Um, well, that was the accent. Okay. That's it. Yeah, it's actually, it's actually a, a Middle Tennessee accent. So <laughs> when we talk about Nashville 
if we assume that a city the size of Nashville has a cultural context, we make a huge mistake that, that misses the majority of people that actually live in the city. We'll miss being able to have a contextualized mission uh, and a contextualized understanding of the gospel that reaches them. Here's why. Nashville is also home to the largest collection of Kurdish people in the world outside of the Middle East. There's 15,000 plus of them there. Not a one of them wears a big belt buckle or a cowboy hat. So if you assume Nashville has your stereotyped culture of, and you try to plant a church or you try to create a missionary method that engages your stereotype of the whole, you miss anybody that doesn't fit your stereotype. Mm -hmm. What we've got to understand in North America right now is that all this talk about American culture is actually unhelpful if we think that there is a universal culture and we just need to tap into that vein. And once we've tapped into that vein, church will be successful now in the United States. We can't approach it that way. Instead, we've got to look at a city like Nashville, a city like Houston or Chicago or Grand Rapids or wherever you're located and realize that it's actually a collection of hundreds of social circles and cultures all on top of each other. Now, they overlap. They interact with one another at spots, but in other ways, they're distinct. And so what we've really got to do if, like the book of Acts, we want to talk about true gospel saturation, this idea that every man, woman, and child in an area would be confronted with the truth of the gospel. And we need cultural manifestations of the gospel that match or are equal to the diversity that exists in the context we're trying to, to reach. And now what that means is there's no silver bullet. There's no magic one way to strategize about doing missions well in an area. It means essentially we need house churches that are in Urdu in, in Houston. Uh, it means we also need something that's going to probably continue on in the majority culture that people have thought of evangelical church because there are still many people that are living in that vein. Uh, it means we need networks. It means we need big, we need small, we need different languages, we need different structures and manifestations. Mm. The gospel itself is relevant. You don't make the gospel relevant, but you do make it understandable. That's, and that's excellent. And that's the thing that we've got to consider when it comes to social location and cultural location mm -hmm. in any kind of missions method. Um, what that does is it should give us some humility. We should be able to say, my method's not the only method. Um, I think we do have kind of a biblical minimum here. Uh, the proclamation and testimony of the gospel by those in the local churches for the purpose of making new disciples that are fully formed and can replicate, right? Like, how do we get at that in the social location that Christ has given us? And how do we work with others who are like-minded to us? So other fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in our area in such a way that we can partner with them to reach areas that we may not be in. This Context, is really helpful because be it in. seems, it seems that what a lot of the things that we've been talking about in a physiology and the things that you are saying, Keelan, um, seems we have spent way too much time and way too much effort fighting over or disagreeing on methodologies. Mm. Maybe the most helpful thing is to find the right questions to boil it down and saying, are, are we about the most important minimums? Are right. we about seeking God's glory? Are we about seeing him unite all people in him? Uh, are we about making sure, as you said, that we are faithfully proclaiming and we are faithfully bearing witness? And if we're doing those, then let's keep pushing forward. Yeah, and I, I think that's a great point, Andrew. And I love what Keelan was saying about that, that, uh, that a part of proper missiology is going to be understanding that we're in a place and a time. And one of the things that we're trying to do with Ephesiology is, is to begin to look at the, even the biblical documents. You know, Paul wrote Ephesians in a place and a time. He was dealing with certain issues uh, that, that were for that place and for that time. There are absolutely principles that we apply uh, today in the way in which we live out our Christianity. But one of the things that Ephesiology is doing for us is showing us that, hey, what they were doing there, let's do here. Because Paul was writing to a place and a time and really connecting. And John, the, I mean, I so often refer to the Gospel of John and the brilliance that he brings into connecting Jesus's story with this story of Asia Minor. We need to do that too. And so what Ephesiology is doing is helping us to, to see that here's what these guys did. Now go and do likewise. And uh, so, Keelan, I really appreciate uh, what you've been sharing 
uh, about missiology in the context of the United States. Thank you, and thank you so much again for your time with us today. And man, what a joy this has been! And um, just uh, just kind of downloading so much of this information. And um, and I'm I can't wait to go back and re-listen. <laughs> I took a bunch of notes, and um, man, I just can't wait to be uh, hear hear all this uh, content again. So I think you're giving us some things to chew on, and for I think the church in North America to to continue to be thinking through, and um, and for us to really embrace what does an ecosystem of church planting look like and a church planting movement as we kind of face these new challenging times uh, in the future. Uh, Keelan, how, how can uh, our audience uh, connect with you or, or find you? Yeah, so there's several ways to do it. Um, my, like you can find me on our website, ubahouston.org is an easy place to find me. All my contact information is on there. And I'm on Twitter as well. Uh, name's Keelan Cook. It's K-E-E-L-A-N-C-O-O-K. Uh, and that's it. So you can, you can hit me up at both of those places. That's awesome. Well, Keelan, thank you again. And for our audience, we've been talking to Keelan Cook. He's the senior church consultant with the Union Baptist Association in Houston, Texas. And so we're grateful for you and uh, your time with us today. And uh, for our audience as well, just as a reminder, you can join our conversation here at Ephesiology. Uh, be sure to share the podcast uh, and have your friends and uh, uh, and those and your church leaders uh, subscribe to the Ephesiology podcast on your favorite uh, means of getting podcasts. Find us online at ephesiology.com and also join us uh, online on our Facebook page by searching Ephesiology. So for Michael, Andrew, Keelan, and myself, Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the Ephesiology Podcast.